Hello, and welcome to Amplify. Music there from Scott McLaughlin, a new release called A Particular Constellation of Openings and Closures. And we'll be chatting to Scott about his work later in the episode. This is episode 20 and we begin, Yvonne, with a new piece from Amanda Fieri and flautist Lena Andonoska, The Skulls, which was released just this week. Yeah, it's a wonderful collaborative effort from Lena and Amanda. Really, this piece um, was it's totally engaging, as as we'll hear a little bit later on. But, you know, Lena came to Dublin a few years back, Jonathan, from Australia, and uh, such a wonderful specialist performer in contemporary music. And she engaged so quickly with the, the new music scene here in Ireland and has collaborated with lots of composers, with fellow performers. And I suppose the culmination of that was her solo album on Diatribe Records, which was released during New Music Dublin, Away Alone Alast. And uh, it's been receiving really positive uh, feedback from listeners and uh, features works by Judith Ring, Donica Dennehy and Nick Roth. And they're, they're just three of the many Irish composers that she's had contact with and worked with over the last few years. And it was, uh, it was great to have Amanda back on the podcast. She was uh, in the very first episode talking about the economic realities of being a composer living in Dublin and the challenges that are faced by many who are trying to make a living through their art. And uh, of course, she also featured in our podcast that we recorded at New Music Dublin, where we were discussing diversity in, in new music. That's right. And you mentioned New Music Dublin. And one of the people who I didn't manage to interview during that weekend was Lena. And um, we were supposed to you know, hook up, but it didn't happen because of uh, schedules and all the rest of it. So it was great to be able to chat to her virtually uh, along with Amanda this week about their collaboration on the piece. Both Amanda and Lena uh, share the same birthday and uh, I too share that birthday as well as a coincidence. So they released the recording to mark this, not my birthday, but their birthdays. It's confusing, I know. So the recording is available on Bandcamp and proceeds from the sale go to Women's Aid. You'll hear a conversation between them now about the piece and this will be followed by the piece itself. I travelled back to Germany two weeks ago. Uh, I was in Ireland for since, well, for most of the lockdown and I've just arrived back. I came back because this week we've started rehearsing here. So we have started rehearsals only in small groups, like in small chamber combinations behind perspex cages because the regulations here are... We, we can do some of these activities as long as there's only a certain amount of people in the one area that we're all socially distanced. And as wind players, we have to play behind perspex. But we have live broadcasts coming up at the very end of May, which we're rehearsing for. For the last two months, especially in Ireland, like for me, I like my soul yearned to create music with other people. That's what I really miss is that connection 
to the people, like actual connection through sound. That's the biggest kind of thing for me. I was really delighted that Amanda and I were able to put that piece out. That was actually probably one of the more exciting things that's happened in the last few months for me. (laughs) I listened to a lot of solo flute stuff. I thought about what it was in various solo works that I really liked and what I wasn't really drawn to at all. One thing I said to Lena at the beginning that I I was going to try to do a, a solo work and not a flute piece with electronics. That's been something in a couple of solo pieces previous to this that I think I've used an electronic part as just a crutch to kind of fill, have it as a bed or, or fill out silences or spaces in the piece. So I really wanted to work hard on this one to, to not rely on an electronic part. I was reading an article about Hillary Clinton and how her voice is considered shrill. That article went into sort of scientific stuff about the frequency of female voices and how men actually cannot hear some of those frequencies and that some of those higher frequencies are considered offensive. Cue another rabbit hole then and I I found an article, I I think it's part of a a book um, called Venomous Tongues, so speech and gender in late medieval England. It's written by uh, Sandy Bardsley. That's where I discovered what a, a scold was, which in medieval England most of the time kind of put as a label on a woman who was nagging or had a sharp tongue or wanted to express an opinion that it was a lot to do with political speech and political female speech but this article I was reading also kind of goes into the context of I guess wider developments of like repressing speech and repressing female speech that's considered disruptive or kind of anti-establishment and then I read about this scold's bridle. It was a muzzle. If you Google photographs of it, it, it's this insane looking thing. So there was a part that was put into the mouth, which actually trapped the tongue. So you, you couldn't speak. You could kind of mumble and you could probably make humming noises, but it was like incredibly restrictive. These women were also told to wear the bridle in public. So it was actually to shame them. At some point, I was reading about this and thinking about my flute piece. (laughs) And I thought about the mouthpiece of the flute. I could work with Lena on getting these sounds that are um, kind of obscured and not clear. And thinking of of the mouthpiece as this skull's bridle. We had this piece recorded and we were just kind of discussing, I guess, what to do from from that point on. and like, I guess in my mind and I guess in Amanda's mind, we had kind of plans of like a grand release um, at some point in the future. Amanda worked on it from her end um, because it was just kind of ready to go. And um, Amanda just really needed to shape shape a few things in there. Um, when I listen to myself quite often, like I'm very all the time, actually, not quite often, all the time, default, self-critical. I was kind of a little hesitant or tentative because I was worried about what Amanda thought about my playing of her music. And so when she sent me back the the edit, I was like, gosh, this needs to be released. And um, yeah, and it was Amanda's idea to bring it out, you know. So I was like, absolutely, let's do it. You know, let's go for it. And she suggested donating the money to charity and like Women's Aid just seems like such 
couldn't have been any other better match for the piece, really kind of thinking about it. But I'm quite proud of it, uh, you know, quite, quite proud of what you have done, Amanda. And I was happy to be the vessel. <laughs> it's really interesting that you talk about feeling hesitant and, and feeling unsure because myself and Lena have both had this recording kind of sitting on our hard drives or computers for a number of months now. I, I wrote a lot of music last year. I also had to finish a PhD. So there's a lot of music that I, I honestly rushed through to, to make the deadlines. This piece is the one piece I'm most happy with and, and proud of. It's really funny hearing Lena talk about being conscious of her playing I, I listened to the, to the piece thinking the performance is phenomenal but what I wrote is it good is it good enough so I I had hesitations about going oh you know could I have changed this bit and nothing to do with the playing or the performance but just my composing I don't know if composers especially if it's rehearsed two days before a premiere and then a premieres and it's out in the world and you get a recording and that's very little time to sit with something and I mm -hmm. feel like this was recorded in September and I've, I've had it and I've been listening to it and I just I'm and same with Lena as well we've had all that time and then it just felt now felt right to, to do something with it you know I actually haven't done a live premiere of the piece I guess it's a different kind of a co collaboration we, we capture what you've sculpted in in the in the recording so I guess that's interesting what you what you're saying you know uh, I am now working backwards from okay there's the recording now how can I uh, pr produce that vibe that aesthetic within the live performance and I look forward to when the time comes to do that you know that's going we'll to be exciting we'll have to have a post-covid release party I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> we can actually hug each other, you know.
Schools by Amanda Fieri, played by Lena Andonovska. And you can purchase this recording from Amanda's Bandcamp page at amandafieri.bandcamp.com. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for this podcast, as we feel certain you'll want to purchase that haunting piece for solo flute. Next, Scott McLaughlin. And he has also released a new recording on Bandcamp this week, which is an improvisation by himself on an analog synthesizer with feedback loop. I spoke to Scott in his garden, actually, uh, uh, over Zoom, and I spoke to him about his his current situation and what it's like for him uh, working and composing during 
being in quarantine. We also spoke about his uh, recent work for orchestra, which was postponed. And there is a nice connection between it and the earlier Composer Lab project that he did with CMC and with the RT National Symphony Orchestra. I think that was from 2016. Uh, he's written uh, a new piece that was due to be premiered in Scotland. We also spoke about his recent uh, project for uh, writing for clarinet and more in general about his his approach to to composing and how he likes to work. There's a theme here with the earlier uh, segment on Amanda and Lena that he also has released a piece on Bandcamp this week. As you mentioned, Yvonne, we speak about that at the end as well. So here is Scott McLaughlin. So I'm in Huddersfield in the UK, which is just south of Leeds. Uh, the lockdown situation is a bit weird. I'm a full-time academic, so I'm doing that from home. But I'm on I'm on research leave this year, which means I've got a big research project looking at composing for clarinets, which is a lot of fun. But that involves a lot of hands-on work, which has suddenly had to jump to being online, which is quite weird. I'm very lucky in that I'm in I'm in a house in a kind of a leafy area in Huddersfield, so we're able to get out and wander in the forest a little bit. But certainly, trying to compose, etc., under this uh, with a young family, etc., it's it's been challenging in in lockdown. But you know, little things are getting done. The nice thing is, I brought home a pile of equipment from university when I saw that we were locking down. I said, "Sod it! I'm going to take home everything I can from the university that I might use." So I brought home a synthesizer and a bunch of other things that I wanted to just get to know and try out. So I've been doing a little bit of that, and that's been really nice. I guess when when you're when you're composing, I'd imagine it's a it's about creating the right environment and kind of atmosphere and space. So if you're in the one place. And there's nothing changed about it. it. It it can be maybe a bit of a challenge to do substantial creative work. It's a headspace issue. It's, mm. I mean, in some ways, life hasn't changed that much. But I think the generalized anxiety about when will lockdown end? Can I go to the shops? Can I do normal things? It. I don't lie awake at night thinking about the lockdown situation, yet at the same time it kind of eats away at you in weird ways. It undermines your larger sense of, okay, I'm comfortable in my space now and I can get on with work. I'm, I'm sure you know that story, that's the, the old Morton Feldman story of um, needing the right chair. He couldn't compose, couldn't compose, so him and someone else went out and they wandered around Brooklyn until they found the right chair, and then he found the right chair, and then he could compose. I mean... Knowing Morton Feldman, it's probably not true, or at least it's probably at best a half-truth, an exaggeration. But, but I understand that. I get that. You do need to have the right kind of feeling around you, whether that's a chair or a headspace or, or something. And at the moment, there's just so much interruption from everything else that it's kind of hard to keep that going. And looking at the, the list of upcoming and recent performances on your website, you know, when I was just kind of prepping for this, uh, I noticed that the most recent ones, all sadly postponed, of course, are, orc are orchestral pieces. And I remember the last time I spoke to you about four years ago, 
when you were in the middle of writing one of these, uh, a brash, as part of our Composer Lab project with RTE. And you were telling me at the time that this was the first large scale piece you'd ever written. Um, and you've, you wrote another one that was due for performance. Are you hopeful that these pieces will take place in, in the future? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the The new piece was written for Elon Volkov and the Tectonics Festival in Glasgow. For a while at the start of lockdown, it looked like it might happen, and then it became clear that it that it couldn't. Uh, and and they've said um, that it'll be done again in the future. I think, like a lot of organisations, they're just trying now to push that ahead into next year or whenever next is practical. But in terms of writing orchestral pieces, the one I did for for the Composer Lab that was a great experience because I'd never before then thought in my life that I'd write an orchestra piece because it, in some ways, it doesn't really fit the kind of stuff I do. I tend to work with one or two players for a long time on very specific techniques that then involve teaching those to other people. And you just can't do that with an orchestra. It's just not the way orchestras are built. So having to rethink my approach to a group of people who are going to play this, rehearse this for two or three or four hours before playing it, needed to really bend my brain around how can I, how can I find something that allows me to do the kind of indeterminate and contingent things that I want to do in the context where orchestral players will be into it and find it enjoyable music to play. Having a chance to work with the BBC Scottish Andre Lambolkov because he does so much contemporary music with them and so much really out there stuff, uh, it's possibly one of the best orchestras to have to write for as an experimental music composer, I think. So really looking forward to seeing what happens with that. Uh, I have a funny feeling now, given an extra year, I might just rethink the piece quite quite a lot. But that's the nature of these things. As soon as you see a, an opportunity to to go in and tinker with something, you just you kind of have to grab it. doing the composing you have the idea you push through it you you go through a bunch of ups and downs and ups and downs as the idea fades and flickers in your mind as you're trying to keep it going on paper you have a certain drive and once you get over the initial few humps there's a point comes where you're just largely powering along through it and sometimes that powering along takes three or four goes and then you get there and then it's done and then as soon as you have a chance to sit back from it you're suddenly in a totally different headspace and usually though what happens with that is that headspace is a week before the performance and there's no time to do anything and you can't really change anything so you just think oh well whatever new th- new thoughts i have let's move them on to the next piece so then in this case and especially with something big like a 20 minute orchestra piece now that i'm suddenly looking at the thing that's done and thinking oh but now it could become a different thing there's I've already got five or six ideas for what the current piece could become if I twisted it in different directions. I'll have a chat with Elan for a start and just see see what he thinks, but there's definitely some other ways I could take this piece.
tell me about this large-scale project for clarinet, uh, because you're, you played clarinet originally, didn't you? As I always say to my composition students, as a composer, you kind of have to be grade one on everything just to know your way around mm-hmm. stuff. So I, I have owned a clarinet for a long time, since, since my 20s, when I picked it up and just messed around with it. So I, that's a really interesting part of the project. I can get the kind of noises that I like out of a clarinet, but I, I couldn't even play a grade two clarinet piece because I don't care that much about notes and notes that move fast. I care much more about how I can use embouchure and throat and these kind of things to bring out different types of sounds and registers from the instrument. So I, I coming into this as, in some ways, the worst kind of dilettante. I know what I can do, and I like what I can do. And then I'm looking at talking to real clarinetists and saying, OK, so when I do this, how does that equate to the world of a real clarinetist, etc.? Trying to bridge that gap. The project is great. I'm really, really proud and happy to have got funding for this project. It's basically looking at the clarinet and saying, there's all these sounds that clarinets are very good at, clarinetists are very good at making. You've got, you've got the standard notes, you've got all these multiphonics and things, but there's also a whole pile of interesting things where the clarinet pushes back where the clarinet has its own body of sounds and its own body of responses. It's kind of a feedback system in some ways, in that when you sit back from the instrument and do slightly unstable things, once you're pushing air into the instrument in in a certain fingering, with a certain kind of mouth or embouchure shape, you get slightly unpredictable things, you get contingent sounds, you get indeterminate things. And these can be very interesting, not as sounds, but in the possibility that you can treat the clarinet as kind of a duet partner. So I take a certain fingering, I blow into it, I get a note I expected, but I can also hear this other high note that wants to come out. I try and push that a bit more, and that does come out, but it splits in a weird way. So what the project is really about is saying, when you when you pull back the player's agency a bit from the instrument, and see what sounds come out of the instrument under its kind of under its own steam that you end up with this interesting situation where you can let the instrument make some decisions for itself so what the what i ended up doing is writing these pieces that are kind of like uh, do you remember those choose your own adventure books did you ever play those yes page 22 you come to a, a fork in the road you take go left or right an orc comes at you do you run away from the orc do you do this so you have all these networking possibilities which are branching and it's the same with the instrument. You can say, right, we're going to set up some kind of multiphonic here, and then when you go for it, that multiphonic might split into a high note, it might split into a low note. If it does A or B, then the composition moves this way or it moves the other way. So it's kind of setting up these labyrinths within the instrument and then exploring these labyrinths. And I've been very fortunate to work with Heather Roche, the clarinetist, uh, who I've known since oh, when she was PhDing up in Huddersfield with, here as well. And she's been fantastic. She's just happy to to mess around with anything and try anything and bring her expertise into that. This idea of finding the unstable elements of, of instrumental sound and using it as a, as a basis, as, as you described, to produce these unpredictable systems. I mean, are those un- unpredictable systems for the performer or for the, for the listener or the audience? 
how are you thinking about the perception of these pieces and, and, and the research you're doing into it? That's a really good question because underneath all the kind of ivory tower highfalutin thinking about, oh, you could do this and you could do that, the practicalities of it are really interesting. So there, there's two, two answers to that question. For the audience, the interest here for me is in trying to find hidden regularities. So fundamentally, all all music in some way or another is to do with repetition and variation. We repeat things, we vary things. How much you repeat and vary things gives you different styles of music. It's everything from pop music through to Brian Fernio. And, and how much of that is, is obvious to the audience, etc. In terms of the labyrinth side, I think as you go through anything that's repeating and feeding back on itself, you're always retaining some elements of familiarity, but those things are also being twisted as they go. Personally, I always like that the audience has the opportunity to understand what I'm thinking in a piece. So my program notes tend to be very, how can I put this, didactic. I explain what I'm doing and, you know, hopefully that's interesting to you. When I'm working with these kind of labyrinths within the piece, it can be as simple as saying, let's use this and this fingering as a basis because we know that they produce a couple of notes that are reasonably predictable. But as the labyrinth twists away from those, you get variations and then they come back to those points where you get something that was similar to before, but maybe now slightly changed. So you're always getting this to and fro from similar things. From the performer's perspective, that's a really interesting one because you have the huge variance of, of performers who want to know exactly what they're doing before they step on stage, understandably, and performers who want to take a bunch of risks on stage and see how they can improvise or play their way out of that. What I want to do is be able to, to set both of those opportunities up. So we've been doing a bunch of these pieces and if you want to go and check this out, the, the project is called the Garden of Forking Paths. There's a website which is forkingpaths.leads.ac.uk. But for the player, some of these things are pieces where you can build your path in advance. You can sit down and practice 50 times and say, right, I'm going to take this path through the labyrinth and that's what I'm going to do. Even if it goes wrong at this point, well, I know that I can double back and find my way through to here. Whereas for some other players, they can just pick up the instrument, put a random fingering down and say, right, go and see what comes out and just respond to the instrument as it goes and put themselves into risky positions and see what happens as it goes on. I was going to ask you about pre-improvisation and your interest and, and it's been an influence on your work. So by giving performers the freedom to choose their pathways, some may take a more freer route and, and others that maybe come from a, 
a more grounded classical training and practice may take a slightly more structured, considered uh, approach. Is that where that that coming into it, the, the free improvisation in, in terms of your, your work and your influence? Improvisation is an interesting one because it, it's such a contested territory in some ways, improvisation. Actually, it was in Dublin when I came into improv. I, I happened to attend a, a session run by um, Eddie Prevost from AMM uh, in the project. And he was doing this couple of day, day-long improvisation workshop, and that was great. And there was about 12 of us there. And as it happened, out of that, I got friends with three or four other musicians. We ended up playing up. Oh, three or four years at least we had a constant running improv and various things uh, that went on to be United Bible Studies and Murmansk and a bunch of other whole interesting free and free folk stuff in Dublin I've done a lot of improv very sporadically I've, I've improvised for a long time but I, I wouldn't say I'm an improviser on the scene in that mm. way what's interesting for me is that I end up improvising myself on an instrument and pieces often come out of that because the improvisation for me is about, is about exploring what the instrument can do in a very minimal, tightly focused way. I've been doing a lot of stuff with prepared string instruments recently, so I'll, I'll sit down with my prepared cello and I'll just play for half an hour just around one tiny little thing, changing it tiny little bits to see what happens. So it, it, it's in some ways a long way from the free expression idea of impro improvisation where anything could happen at any moment. The kind of improvisation I'm dealing with is, is more like the everyday improvisation that we, we deal with. It, as, uh, as Dan DiPiero says, you're, you're improvising when you brush your teeth. Everything is about taking a set of skills that you have and in a constrained situation exploring what its possibilities are. So you released a, a new piece on Bandcamp this week, uh, a particular constellation of openings and closures. Is <laughs> Catchy title. My question is a, a facetious one. Is this a piece of lockdown art? Sure. It happened in lockdown. It wouldn't have happened without lockdown. Tell me a bit more about the about the piece. It's an improvisation, right? And and you mentioned you 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 took home a bunch of uh, equipment from the university. So I'm guessing that the Korg MS20 synth is that one of the pieces that you took home or is that your own? Yeah, no. That that was that was a lockdown acquisition. I'd messed around a bit with synths before, but I would never devoted the time to it. So I thought I'm going to have a pile of time here. <laughs> That's what I thought anyways. It was one of those first things I did in the first week home where on some downtime from doing something else, I just plugged it in and messed around with it for about a day or so. And I, t I found something that worked for me. I found a really nice place where you could set up just the right parameters that tiny changes of the knob would might cause some feedback to come up or might not. And you, you're kind of keeping two or three forces in balance. It, it's, it's very like, it's like spinning plates at resonators. There's a couple of filters and they were just balancing against each other and the tiniest push on one would force you to push the other one back the other way and see what would happen. It's definitely lockdown art in the sense that that early section of lockdown gave me the opportunity to say, let's just see what happens. And then it, it's an improvisation in the same way that I described a minute ago, in that I had a very limited and constrained setup. 
and I wanted to explore what was possible within that. So I think I must have the improvisation itself is about 40, 50 minutes, fifty something minutes long. And I sat back and I listened to that several times over a, a couple of weeks and just kept listening to it. And I, I liked it, but there was just something missing from it. I just couldn't quite put my finger on it. Something about it was just not doing enough. And then as it happened, I just had the random idea to put it in canon with itself. So I just made a copy of the file, stuck it really far out of whack, stuck it a full minute out of whack from itself just to see what would happen. And it was just perfect. And I didn't mess with it again. I said, that, that's it, done. The improvisation is there in the whole process. The improvisation was in the playing of the machine. The improvisation was also in the structuring of the whole thing. I, I, I got lucky. I just happened to shove a thing around in the right way and, and it landed. It's like that thing where you knock a pencil over and it lands on its end and you think, oh, that's great. Scott, thanks so much. It's been lovely to chat to you and see your garden and hear the birds and <laughs> see the squirrels and everything. Scott McLaughlin. And you can find out more about Scott and his music at scottmclaughlin.co.uk. We also include the link to his new piece on Bandcamp in the show notes. Finally, we have the first of our two CMC emerging composers, Anya Mallon, in a conversation recorded recently. Yeah, Anya Mallon and Alton O'Brien were selected as the CMC Emerging Composers for 2020, Jonathan, as you know. And um, the CMC Emerging Composer Scheme was established back in 2018 to specifically provide supports and professional development opportunities to emerging composers as a foundation programme for future associate representation. Throughout 2020 and uh, possibly beyond, Alton and Anya will receive mentoring and professional development opportunities in a in a specifically individualized program created by ourselves at CMC. Full details on the application process for emerging composers are uh, to be found at the resources section of CMC's website in the composer resources. And we're also always very happy to um, take calls or email inquiries about the scheme. And uh, the emails are available for all staff at the staff page of the CMC website. Now, interestingly, this year, Jonathan, both of the CMC emerging composers, Anya and Alton, have Irish traditional music in their backgrounds. And Anya talks about this in your interview with her. She's from the north of Ireland and she's now based in Manchester in the UK and broad interest in styles and genres as we'll hear in the interview. She's written a range of music varying from large-scale theatrical works to smaller choral chamber and solo pieces in a range of styles including contemporary classical and Irish folk. So let's hear from Anya Mallon now. I'm Anya Malin, and I'm a contemporary classical composer. 
tell me a little bit about your musical background, how you actually came to be a composer. I started out actually as an Irish traditional musician. Uh, I come from quite a musical family. My elder sister plays the harp and my brother plays the ill and pipes. And uh, my younger sister plays the fiddle and the concertina. And um, I myself play the, the fiddle and, and the piano. And um, so we all sort of played Irish traditional music alongside studying classical music. Uh, and then I moved to Manchester to study music at the university. Uh, and I specialised in composition and um, sort of never looked back, really. <laughs> um, so I'm fairly new to composition as a career since leaving university only a few years ago. But the, the new music community is a, a, a very welcoming one and one that I feel very lucky to be a part of. So. And at what point did you realize that composition was for you, uh, you know, obviously coming coming from a background in playing and, you know, as you said, as you mentioned, playing traditional music. At what, at what point did, did it sort of hit you? Actually, this is the, the area or the direction that I want to go in. I think it was it was actually in my final year at university. I just became absolutely fascinated with the idea of translating um, translating things into sound, basically. I wrote a series of sound sketches uh, and I, I basically tried to translate various phenomena into sound. So for example, I wrote a, I wrote a sound sketch for um, the uh, the bass clarinet and the flute about the journey of a black hole and sort of how I would imagine that translated into sound and that kind of got me hooked and I'm not saying that I uh, necessarily achieve those aims <laughs> but it's it's what I you know strive to do and sort of you know allowing the music to breathe and allowing people to kind of sit within the music um, and and let it sort of wash over them and uh, affect them in different ways. In terms of your own musical preoccupations, you know, from a composition point of view, you know, what what is it that interests you musically and compositionally at the moment? Oh, I'd say I have a, a fairly broad interest in style and genre. Um, you never really know where your ideas are going to come from, I suppose. So I try to listen to as varied a repertoire as I can. Um, so, I, I mean, I listen to a lot. Uh, so as I, as I mentioned before, I'm a, I was originally sort of a folk uh, Irish traditional musician. So I listen to a lot of folk music, but I suppose compositionally translating phenomena into sound, but also the idea of character. I think that's something that I try to capture, well, really in all of my music. So musically capturing the essence of a character so I'd say I'm quite drawn to narratologically focused concept. I write a lot of choral and vocal music. I suppose in that way, uh, I'm sort of more drawn to sort of text-based things that, um, that sort of follow a narrative.
where does the interest in 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 choral music come from and and in in text uh well i'm a really big reader i read a lot and i sort of grew up singing a lot of choral music so i was in the ulster youth choir when i was in school and that sort of carried me through uh, into university i was part of the uh, chamber choir and i'm a singer I studied singing uh, alongside composition at university. I've always been really drawn to choral music and it's sort of really intense beauty and how pure it can be, how character and textually driven a lot of the music is. And I think that, yeah, that's something that I really try to capture in in my music. Uh, so, for example, when I, I wrote a piece called Dum Transisit Sabatum last year, uh, which was for composer competition for the Aura Singers. And the idea was to write a reflection on Tavener's piece of the same title. And the piece is about the three women uh, in the Bible going to Jesus's tomb to embalm his body. And the way I approached the reflection was to get to the heart of the characters. So every other setting of this, of this text has been incredibly joyful. Um, because it's sort of preempting Easter Sunday. But in my setting, what I wanted to do was really get to the heart of the characters. And in that situation, I felt they would have been extremely mournful. So that informed sort of how the characters were feeling in that moment, informed my concept and all of my musical parameters. Uh, so the, the music was kind of based around around the the characters. The other piece that you uh, I came across that you sent me was the the piece for string quartet flotsam. There's an environmental message behind that, and and it's very much about raising raising awareness in 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 the sense of of the overly polluted nature of our oceans with plastic. Is this something that that you're you're interested in, or you know, writing music that actually conveys a message you know in this case an, a, an environmental one and, and and how we need to save the planet or or you know be more environmentally uh, conscious absolutely um i think in the case of flotsam i was i was very very much uh, wanting to wanting to get a message across with that work so it really is sort of a short sonic exploration of how plastic pollution in our oceans is affecting marine life. The the core of the message, I really tried to get into the actual structure of the piece. So within the piece, uh, the state of musical sort of normality representing marine life is continuously interrupted by increasingly violent interjections and that ultimately caused the musical life form to cease existing. And I thought that was a really tangible way of trying to get that message across. (laughs) 
last year I was awarded um, an Emerging Artist Award uh, by a wonderful company based in Belfast called Moving On Music. Um, and through that, uh, I was set up with a variety of ensembles to write for, uh, one of which being the Piatti Quartet, who are an absolutely fantastic uh, string quartet. Um, and they had asked me to write a short piece um, based on sort of whatever I wanted to write. This environmental issue was obviously extremely important to me. And uh, it, I think it worked in this case because the, the narrative fit the music extremely well. Um, and I think art, art can be a reflection of society and a lot of composers approach pieces in that way. And they reflect what, they reflect how society is or what they want society to be within their music, whether that be through text or uh, narratologically or within the music itself. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and do please remember to subscribe to our podcast. Visit cmc.ie forward slash amplify. As always, we welcome your feedback on the series and episodes, so do please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Amplify at cmc.ie. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.